Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome to Wake Up Heavy, the world's greatest horror movie podcast. Hello and welcome back to Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. This is the fourth episode for the Spotlight on Stephen King series. And this time we'll be discussing the years 1984 to 1987. And this will be the final episode in this format Because as I have mentioned, this is when uh, my interest in Stephen King kind of peters out. And the last book published in 1987 really was the nail in the coffin, and I'll get to that in a little bit. There were no signs of King slowing down over these four years. And remember, I mentioned that... The years 1980-83 were oversaturated with King material. Well, that may have been a little bit premature on my part, because there's even more stuff during these four years. Six published novels, one novella, one collection of short stories, the Bachman book Thinner, and this is when that pseudonym was, was discovered and the story broke. And again, I'll get to that when I talk about the Bachman books. I, I do believe I'll do that as a separate episode. And so those four previous novels under the Bachman pseudonym came out in an omnibus in 1985 as well. So they rushed those to print under King's name, probably sold millions more copies than they had as Bachman books. As far as movies... We have eight released during these years. Hollywood was still digging deep into King material, but they were starting to pick at the smaller rocks. A lot of these, or most of them released during this time, were based on short stories or the novellas. The movies released during that time are Children of the Corn, Firestarter, Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet... Maximum Overdrive, Stand By Me, Creep Show 2, and The Running Man. And really only Firestarter and The Running Man are based on novels. And if I'm not mistaken, only one of the stories featured in Creep Show 2 was from a previously written King work that appeared in the Skeleton Crew, but I think it was written years, years earlier. And we'll kind of get back to that when I talk about Skeleton Crew. The novels under King's name that were published, and this includes shorter works as well, uh, between 1984 and 1987 are The Talisman, Cycle of the Werewolf, It, The Eyes of the Dragon, The Dark Tower, The Drawing of the Three, Misery, and The Tommyknockers. I actually had left Tommyknockers off my list originally. It came out in November of 1987, and uh, yeah, that was that was the proverbial nail in the coffin. And we'll get to that when we kind of talk about it and Stephen King book endings, which is a whole thing now. 
So of those books that I just rattled off, uh, the ones that were turned into movies are The Cycle of the Werewolf as Silver Bullet in 1985, It as a television miniseries in 1990, and more recently as a two-part movie released in 2017 and 2019, uh, The Dark Tower, which I discussed last time and I'm not going to talk about any more on this episode, and Misery in 1990. The Tommyknockers was released as a TV miniseries in 1993. The Talisman is supposedly currently in development and I think it's been in development for a number of years with different people attached as these things go Uh, but it looks like it's being handled by Amblin Entertainment currently and so I'm keeping my fingers crossed and the Eyes of the Dragon is currently in development over at Hulu who have put out a number of King series which is something else that I could talk about at some point I will mention this, though. The second season of Castle Rock looks to be even better than the first. And it is all about a young Annie Wilkes, who people will recognize from one of the books that I talk about on this episode. The Talisman was a really big deal for me. I I think I was immediately struck by the cover image. I was still buying or had been buying the hardcover, so I had that hardcover. Really, really enjoyed the story. It kind of hit me. I was, I think I got my dates wrong early on in the introductory episode when I mentioned that I ripped this off for a a quote-unquote award-winning story and said that that happened in my freshman year, and it was actually my sophomore year uh, because The Talisman came out at the end of 1984. Again, could have been a Christmas present. Regardless, it struck a nerve. The protagonist is a 12-year-old boy. And I, at 15 or 16, a lot of my stories were about 12-year-old boys. And something about that age, uh, you're on the cusp of many, many changes physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. And, uh, you know, it's a time of casting away childish things. That's when I got rid of comic books and toys and all the stuff that I recollect now. And so I, it, it, hit a, it hit a nerve. And even though I wasn't that far removed from 12 years old at that age, uh, the protagonist in my plagiarized story was also 12, also named Jack, although I dropped the C on it. And also goes on an adventure. It's definitely not as detailed as the King Straub book, but it definitely draws from it. There's even a magical Negro in it, as there is in the Talisman, um, which, and I discussed that trope on the last episode, I believe. I knew nothing about that idea or concept at the time. I was basically just riffing on on King and Straub's work. The Cycle of the Werewolf was published in a limited edition in November of 1983, but as a mass-market paperback in 1985, and there are a couple of books in this time period that got the same kind of treatment, and so I'm kind of going by the mass-market publication dates for these. It had started life as a calendar with illustrations by comic book artist Bernie Wrightson, who had done the Creepshow comic 
to uh, tie in with that movie. Uh, and I'm a little bit hazy on if it actually came out as a calendar or not. I believe it started, that was the original idea, and then King wasn't able to keep the little vignettes for each month brief, and he just, yeah, surprise, surprise, went off and ended up just writing out the novella with the illustrations intact. And I believe for me, this was, since it was sort of an oddity in his publication style, and I don't recall ever buying a copy of this. I know that I read it, and so again, it was probably a library checkout for me. The Cycle of the Werewolf was among the properties that had been snatched up by Dino De Laurentiis, and he contacted Don Coscarelli to adapt the screenplay and to direct. I think his original pitch to Coscarelli was an offer to direct Conan the Destroyer, but Beastmaster had just come out and not done very well, and one of the criticisms was that it was a Conan the Barbarian ripoff, and so Coscarelli declined. Uh, a couple months later, De Laurentiis came back with this Stephen King property. Being a fan of King's, Coscarelli was intrigued. He flew to New York, met with De Laurentiis, and started to work on a screenplay. There was another person there, I think it was uh, an employee of of De Laurentiis, who was assigned to help Coscarelli. And so they basically split up the months of the year and each tackled those on their own, gave the script to De Laurentiis, who was not happy with it. And King was eventually called in to give notes, which King did. So Coscarelli got to meet him. King mentioned how much he liked Phantasm. And I just wanted to read this little bit at the end of this chapter. Uh, regarding the notes and King and Coscarelli's future with the project. I think it illustrates pretty perfectly a lot of the things that I have heard over the years about how De Laurentiis worked. So this is a quick excerpt from Don Coscarelli's book, True Indie, Life and Death in Filmmaking, the chapter titled Dodging a Silver Bullet. I followed Sergio as we eagerly hustled over to Dino's office. We looked in to see Dino at his desk reading King's notes. He gruffly motioned us in and we sat down opposite him as he finished reading. I didn't completely comprehend it at the time, but I now believe his next utterance sealed my fate in regard to Silver Bullet. Dino scowled and uttered, Humph, and he tossed King's notes over his shoulder as if throwing out the trash. My jaw literally dropped open. It made no sense until it did. This guy was clueless. He had just been handed a gift from the greatest writer of our generation and was happy to trash it. He was in total control of my movie. The next day I flew back to Los Angeles and forgot about Silver Bullet. Shelley and I had more important things to focus on. And that was the birth of their first child. The funny thing is, is that King ended up adapting the screenplay on his own for the final version of the film. Now, I, this kind of brings up an error of mine from the past where I mentioned that Maximum Overdrive had been the first since Creepshow. Uh, that's what happens when you do research per episode and <laughs> not for the whole series. 
and the books and movies come out in different orders. So my apologies for that error. The director ended up being a fella named Daniel Atias, who I just saw in some credits yesterday when I watched Twilight Zone the movie. He was the second unit director on one of the stories. I didn't pay attention to which one. I probably could look it up, but since I don't have any internet right now, I can't. It happened every time the moon was full. Nobody knew who or what was responsible. They only knew it had to be stopped. Stephen King's Silver Bullet. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Consult local listings. The name change to Silver Bullet, I think, was a Coscarelli idea, and there are a few other of his ideas strewn throughout the film. He had wanted to hold off on showing the werewolf until later, but De Laurentiis had hired Carlo Rambaldi to design the werewolf, and since he was spending all that money on the creature design, he figured you show it as much as possible. Rambaldi was pretty well known at the time for his work on E.T., and in Alien, and he had previously worked on the effects on a number of Italian horror movies. He had previously worked with De Laurentiis on King Kong. It's time for another tangent. Of course, at my age, I knew of Rambaldi from E.T. as well, but nowadays, I appreciate his work in Possession much more. Uh, That is a movie I hope to get to eventually. I know I've mentioned it in passing with uh, Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny. It's a mind fuck of a movie, and the creature in that is just absolutely bonkers. The movie came out on October 11th, 1985, and was universally panned, but uh, Roger Ebert gave it a positive review. I think he saw it as a spoof on King movies. I don't know if I buy into that myself, I was of the age where if my sister and I had wanted to go, she could have gotten us in. I was 16 and she was 18. But I don't know if I saw this one in the theater. It was around this time that I caught a lot of his films. But uh, I don't have any clear memory of doing that. I know that I rented it a handful of times. It, like Cujo, wasn't one of my go-tos back then. And, like Cujo, I appreciate it a lot more now. It's not as well made as Cujo, in my opinion. Some of the acting is a a bit forced. It's not Corey Haim's best performance. But I kind of have gotten to the point where I like it more now because of what it is and not what it isn't. Uh, Some of the effects are less than stellar. There's a really cool dream sequence in a church that works well. The werewolf itself is not super inspired. A lot of people say it looks more like a bear than a wolf. It's passable. The transformation scenes are a little bit clunky. And because of the clunky werewolf costume, they actually ended up going with Coscarelli's idea of not showing it too soon. So there, Dino. But there's a great cast. We have Corey Haim. We've got a pre-motorcycle accident Gary Busey, 
who adds a wonderful Gary Busey spark to the film. Not quite as manic as some of his later performances, but it is still pretty fun. He was able to ad-lib a lot of stuff. Holy jumped up ball-headed Jesus Palomino. You've got Terry O'Quinn. We have Lawrence Tierney, pre-Reservoir Dogs Lawrence Tierney. Actually, pre-Tough Guys Don't Dance Lawrence Tierney, if I'm not mistaken. I, have you seen that film? That is a fucking weird movie that I loved back then. There's Everett McGill, pre-Twin Peaks Everett McGill, who I don't think I recognized until after I saw Twin Peaks and went back and watched Silver Bullet. So I didn't recognize him in Twin Peaks as the guy from Silver Bullet. It went the other way around. Something like that. What are you even talking about? And Megan follows as Corey Haim's character's jealous and exasperated older sister. Since he is disabled, she feels like he gets all of the attention in the family. And she has continued to work since this movie. It was one of her first roles. And I gotta admit, I kind of had a crush on her back then. She was in all those mid to late 80s Anne of Green Gables miniseries, which I vaguely remember watching some of when I was a substitute teacher in somebody's class that I took over. And of course, she was in an episode of, you guessed it. But there's something about the look and feel of it that's got that and even though I know a lot of it doesn't take place in the fall, it has that fall kind of melancholy look that I like. I don't, I mean, don't ask me to get into great detail about that, but yeah, it puts me in that mood like right now. We're in September and it's starting to get cool here. I don't even have the overhead fan on today. It's so cool. So it has that feeling to it. And I do watch this one for fun these days when I get in those king moods. I watched it a couple weeks ago in quote-unquote preparation for the show, and I enjoy it. It is a King screenplay, so it has some of those silly lines like what I just played from Gary Busey, and it's a whole heck of a lot of fun. The short story collection Skeleton Crew was published on June 21st, 1985, and I was excited to see a new short story collection. I liked Night Shift a lot. And we have stories dating all the way back to the late 60s in this one. The cover itself reminded me of the paperback covers, and I'm curious now as to whether it was the same illustrator or not. I could probably look that up as well. Apparently it was not. The paperbacks were done by Don Brodigam. And the Skeleton Crew cover was by J.K. Potter. Ooh, that's an interesting combination there you think about it? A handful of the stories included in this collection were adapted in one form or another. As I mentioned earlier, The Raft was included in Creepshow 2. Word Processor of the Gods was released as an episode of Tales from the Dark Side in 1984. And I've seen it. I don't remember much about it other than it is very 80s TV style. Grandma was released as an episode of The New Twilight Zone and was written by Harlan Ellison, famous cranky writer of science fiction. I watched that New Twilight Zone, so I probably saw this episode, but I have zero memory of that. It was adapted again as a film under the title Mercy 
and was released. I don't know if it was a direct-to-Netflix or what. I think it was. It's not that great. It's got Chandler Riggs from The Walking Dead and Dylan McDermott. I remember being underwhelmed by it. The Mist, directed by Frank Darabont, his third King adaptation, came out in 2007. It's uh, pretty decent. It has a real downer ending that's different from the story, and it kills me every time I see it. But it it's not something that I can go back to and watch a lot just because the characters become so grating in this situation. But it's definitely worth a look, and it was also turned into a TV series that I think lasted for one season. I gave it a shot, didn't really follow it too terribly closely, and mainly had it on in the background. And the jaunt is forthcoming from the director of It, Andy Muschietti. I am probably mispronouncing his name, so my apologies. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Whose previous film prior to it was Mama, which is actually pretty good from what I remember. The next book to be published was a behemoth of a book. The behemoth. It. Published on September 15th, 1986, it took King five years to write, which was quite unusual for him. He was pretty quick otherwise. Uh, When I was reading up on this, he mentioned that he had first thought about the story in as far back as 1978. So from initial conception to publication, we're talking eight years. This was another one of those books that I snatched up in hardcover, of course, and was in love with that cover art image. I was also very happy that it was long, because more king has to be better than less king, right? Uh, but my initial reading of the book ended up being a little bit difficult. It was dense, with tons of backstory, even for the most minor of characters. And I struggled with that back then at 17 years of age. However, I appreciated that much more when I reread it in anticipation of the new film in 2017. And I blasted through it this time, got a lot more out of it. I got a lot more emotional resonance out of it as well, which is something that I don't think I caught on to at all at 17. But this was kind of the start of uh, the beginning of the end for me with needing to read everything of King's, being really excited about uh, the next publication and the publication after that. And a lot of that had to do with the ending of the book. And so this is something I, I hinted at earlier and we'll talk more about at the end of this episode. But it seemed to me... And I really wasn't aware that this was a a criticism of King's at the time. This was the first instance that I really realized he didn't know how to finish this book. He was writing towards something, but I don't think that that ending was hashed out from the get-go. And and this would become a, a common complaint 
more so after this from critics and from fans themselves. The itsy bitsy spider climbed up the water spout. Down came the rain and washed the spider out. Out came the sun and dried up all the rain. Stephen King's It, starting tomorrow. I met the 1990 miniseries with mild excitement. I remember recording it, watching the first part, then waiting quite some time to finish it. It didn't work all that well for me, and the second part was abysmal. Uh, for me back then, and when I rewatch it now, it is hard to get through that second act. It's actually fairly faithful to the book overall, much more so than the current iterations. But the acting, the adult actors are so hackneyed and ham-fisted. And, unpopular opinion, Tim Curry doesn't do it for me as Pennywise. And part of that is the makeup. Part of that is that it's not played much for scares. And the way it's shot, he's shot so overly lit in most scenes. There's no mood. There's no shadow. It's just bright TV movie lighting. Flat and uninspired. It's, it's watered down king, basically. And it kind of makes me wonder what would have happened if George Romero, who was originally going to direct an 8 to 10 part or 10 hour miniseries, what would have happened if that had come to fruition? I have a feeling it probably would have been a tad bit better, uh, but who knows? With the constraints of TV at that time, you're going to miss a lot of good stuff from the novel. Now, this was directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who I talked about back on the Halloween 3 episode. And uh, it's one of the pieces of work of his that doesn't inspire much confidence in his direction overall. The child actors are pretty decent for the most part. We've got little Seth Green in there. The young man that played Ben in the original miniseries has a cameo in the latest It Chapter 2 Jonathan Brandis is a bit forced through most of the movie as Bill Denborough. Emily Perkins, who plays Beverly Marsh, would go on to be in the Ginger Snaps films. Probably one of the better of that original cast, in my humble opinion. But boy oh boy, these adult actors, and I don't know if this is just direction from Tommy Lee Wallace, crammed shooting schedule, but it's just really awful. And it's a decent cast that should have done better. We have Richard Mazur, who is fine and he's just not in it very long. A favorite of mine from The Thing. Uh, Richard Thomas with his awful, awful ponytail. Harry Anderson, whose ad-libs are just atrocious. Annette O'Toole, who has one of the most laughable lines in TV movie history. Why is it so mean? And then Tim Reed and Dennis Christopher, who do a decent job and I have there's something about Dennis Christopher's early roles that put me off of him for a long time I, I watched Breaking Away a ton when I was a kid and I think in the back of my mind 
There was something about him that always bothered me, and it wasn't until I finally saw Fade to Black and, oh gosh, what was the other one, um, where I realized that he often played these assholes, and he did such a good job about it that I couldn't really stand him in movies. Oh, I know what it was. It was California Dreaming, the surf movie from 1979, where he's, again, he's kind of a dick. I don't get it. Stop it. Stop being assholes. And he's not an asshole in this movie, but there's something that still kind of bothers me. He does a fine job, but just something about his face (laughs) makes me think of him and those other characters. And Tim Reed from WKRP is probably one of the better of the adult actors in this. Hey, did I mention how awful I think the adult actors are in the miniseries? I should mention that Olivia Hussey is in it as well. She plays Bill's wife, and she doesn't do a whole lot because she's catatonic through part of it. But since I talked about her a great deal on the Black Christmas episode, I thought I should put that in. I think the one aspect of any adaptation or from the source material that most people agree on is that the section with the kids is the most interesting And I think partly that's just that King has a knack with writing about 12-year-old kids. He does this in Stand By Me, uh, the talisman that I mentioned earlier. Part of it is that the scares are more effective when you're dealing with younger children. But it's also integral to the story itself in that the kids in the town are perceptive to this evil that's happening. And the adults either ignore it or can't see it or experience it. And this goes on through their lives when all but Mike leave Derry and basically forget all memory of having grown up there. And that kind of screws things up when you're adapting it because that's where the disconnect comes, especially in the miniseries. Once the adults enter and they're trying to remember all these things, it takes up a lot of time. (laughs) And we all already know all of this that's been happening. And so waiting for them to remember it is kind of one of the big stumbling blocks of the adaptation. And which is why the new version of it, the, the 2017 version, Worked kind of perfectly because it was just the kids. Where are you going? You look like a nice boy. I bet you have a lot of friends. I bet you have a lot of friends. The new version of It was released on September 8, 2017. I was fairly excited to see it, and I wanted to reread the book, which I mentioned earlier worked a lot more for me this go-around. I forgot to mention, though, that I got the book back from my brother-in-law, and I had given him all of my hardcovers. Uh, He was reading Stephen King as well and actually kept up. So I figured, well, you know, if he didn't have any of these, he could read them. And the only bad thing about that is that he got rid of all of the dust jackets. 
Now, maybe I'm misremembering this and I got rid of them first, but I kind of doubt it because I, I like them so much. But, uh, you know, so I've got all these first editions, or I guess I don't since I gave them to him. But none of them have the dust jackets anyway. So, oh well, lesson learned. But while I'm thinking of that, the 20th of September is my brother-in-law's birthday, and the 21st of September is Stephen King's birthday, so happy birthday to both of them. I did go see it in the theater, and I think I saw it sometime within its first week of opening, which was unusual for me, and I saw it by myself, which is not unusual for me. It's hard for people to get out of the house in the middle of the day and go see a movie, and every once in a while I take a long lunch break. Don't tell anybody. And I'll just say right off the bat that this young cast is amazing, much better than the original miniseries. No disrespect to them. I think we just have a different kind of environment for kid actors now, and they are much more natural. The standout for me was Jack Grazer as Eddie Kasprak. He had the, I think, most natural delivery, and Finn Wolfhard was good. Sophia Lillis as Beverly, good. Everybody was good. The problem I had was with the changes that they made. I really was expecting a little more faithful adaptation, and some of it I understand, and I'll get to that in a second, but there were some weird things that didn't make any sense to me, and this sort of comes back in Chapter 2. That made it necessary to do a little bit of retconning, which, again, is odd. But the changes that, that threw me off had to do with Mike Hanlon's character, his backstory is changed, and I, I don't quite understand why, except, I guess, to simplify the story a little bit. A lot of his attributes are given to the character of Ben. In the book, Mike is the one who does all the research about Derry. He is homeschooled, lives on the outskirts of town, and he gets this from his dad, who started all this research years ago when he noticed these things about the town. That's all given to Ben. Ben's skills with architecture and building are completely set aside. And until we get to chapter two, when it's convenient to have that back. And this is, I think, in part due to them not being 100% sure that the second part was going to be made. Uh, I know that advance audience previews were very positive. I think that's why the chapter one got tacked on at the end of the film before the credits ran. I don't think it was a done deal that we were actually getting 100% for sure two parts of this book. And that's why they went 100% with the kids, changed what they changed, and then figured they'd fix it in the second one. Uh, the other thing that gets changed are a lot of the scares and part of that is because in the book, Stephen King uses some universal monsters, which would have been unavailable for them. I mean, you could do a wolfman and a mummy without them looking like universal, but I, I don't know if maybe that wouldn't work with a modern audience. I'm not really sure. Uh, Stanley's scare is a weird painting that just never worked for me in that. But those were kind of the minor changes that m made more sense to me, which I alluded to earlier. 
The other thing about the scares that really put me off was that everything had to be amped up. And I guess that's just a modern contrivance. But everything's big, everything's loud, and everything is fast. And when they aren't, when we have quiet, and when we have slow, and when we have small, for me, that works much better. And maybe that's because I'm a 50-year-old man and have those memories of that kind of spooky, creepy, eerie stuff from my childhood. Maybe the case, I think maybe we just assume that that's not going to work with young audiences. I don't know. But it continues through this and in it chapter two. Uh, so many of the forms that Pennywise or it takes are gigantic. They move fast and there's always this cacophony of sound when the scares happen. When things are subtle, that gets me. And one instance of that is in the first chapter when Ben encounters the little boy with the eggs. It starts out slow. You slowly realize that this kid, and spoilers for this, this one's been out for a couple of years. If you haven't seen it, stop now and go watch it and come back. Uh, when he starts walking down the stairs, you slowly realize that he has no head. And then it's just fast and loud and, and obnoxious after that. And this, like I said, continues in chapter two. We have the great scene. And this is actually a very good scene in the uh, miniseries when Beverly goes back to her old house and encounters an old woman who lives there now. And it plays out slow. There are these just subtle oddities from the woman. And then again, it's just big, loud, and fast. And I, it just ruins it for me. Why are you crying? No one wants to play anymore. Play a game with me, would you? You're on the count of three. It Chapter 2, rated R, only in theaters September 6th. It Chapter 2 opened just a little less than two weeks ago. I went and saw it last Friday, had one of those extended lunch breaks, and I... You know, I had been hearing good and bad. A lot of people really loved it, and a lot of people were quite disappointed, and I kind of understand both sides. I really didn't have an, any intention of going to see it, and then I thought, well, shit, this is, you know, I'm going to be talking about it in the next episode. I should probably go see it, knowing that it was almost three hours long, and there were maybe some issues. But I got to say, I quite enjoyed it. I think I like it more than chapter one, and I definitely like it more than the original miniseries. And I'll just put it out there, I enjoy Bill Skarsgård's Pennywise more than Tim Curry's. A lot of that is due to the physicality that he brought to it, not just the thing that he does with his eyes or with his lip, his movement, his athleticism works really well for the character and the voice I think is even better than Tim Curry's I know that's sacrilege for a lot of people but this one creeps me out 10 times more than the Tim Curry Pennywise 
And I love the accident of the drool that happened because of the teeth that he had to wear. And if that doesn't fit the character perfectly, I don't know what to say. He wants to eat kids, people. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit I think for the most part, they did a really good job of getting matching adult actors. Jessica Chastain as Beverly. Uh, I mean, other than the red hair, they don't necessarily look all that much alike. But she's a great actress and she does very well in this. Bill Hader is probably the standout as Richie Tozier, the Finn Wolfhard character. I was sort of shocked at how much the grown-up Ben looked like the young Ben, even though he is a slender man now. The, uh, there was something about the eyes that like kind of totally nailed it. James McAvoy as Bill is uh, a head-scratcher. I'm not sure if it was just his acting if he still has an issue with doing an American accent or what, there was something weird about his delivery that kind of just picked at me through the whole movie. And the guy that plays Eddie, and I'm forgetting his name, Joey Ranson, gets his mannerisms down pretty darn well. I don't remember his character being so obnoxious in the books. He's almost Richie part two, but uh, he did a good job. He did a good job. One of the complaints about Chapter 2 that I sort of take issue with concerned the flashback section. The grown-ups are all called back from Mike because he realizes that Pennywise is at it again. And of course, no one remembers growing up there. Uh, they solely have to recollect things. They go off at one point to pick up something important from their childhood that they can use as a sacrifice in this ritual that they have to perform. So we get them separated, and we get them having individual flashbacks, and it takes place during the time when they were separated in the first movie. And so we kind of get this doubling of these scares that they had when they were alone then, and then now they're different scares. Some of them are connected. I didn't mind that because we were dealing with the kids again. And this is when they kind of pulled a little more faithfully from, from the book. Uh, we've got Beverly scared her old house, um, Richie with the Paul Bunyan statue, which was totally ignored in the first one. And so it was nice to see those as a fan of the book. It was nice to see those back. What it did raise in my mind as a criticism, though, was the misplaced humor that undercut a lot of the scare scenes. And there is one scene in particular... I'll just call it the uh, just call me angel of the morning scene that was so misplaced and misguided. It was I I think I heard at least three other people go <laughs> say what after it happened. I won't spoil it, but you will recognize it with you see it if you haven't seen it yet. And if you have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It, it's just odd. Yes. Not so much of the Richie Tozier stuff, the loudmouth humor threw me off, but there was just some, almost like they didn't trust the scares enough. And like I mentioned, we get the Barons this time, which I was happy to see. So again, it's a little bit of retcon, but since it was so integral to the book, I enjoyed seeing it. So I 
push aside my issue with it and just enjoy it while I'm watching it. I was kind of surprised to see Henry Bowers back because I thought, and, and this may be a little bit of retconning, it seemed like he was left for dead when he fell down the well in the first chapter. But, and I hope that wasn't too spoilery, that he's back. He is obviously a character in the book uh, as an adult, but I kind of felt like they killed him off with that fall. The actor that played, for a second there, I thought, oh my God, that kid grew up so fast in the last two years. He looks so much like the young actor. And even the, the bratty girl who writes Loser on Eddie's cast, the actress that they got for that, just amazingly similar looking to the young actress. Ah, but that brings up another issue. The de-aging and pitch modulation that they had to do. As I said, I suspect that they weren't quite sure that they were going to be doing a chapter two. With the success of the first one, they you know, had to round up these kids who were already probably close to two years older than they were when they first filmed and had to insert them in these flashbacks. Well, between 12 and 14 is a pretty significant time of growth for a young person. So a lot of them, and I remember thinking this when the movie ended and I saw the chapter one and knowing that they were going to go forward the second one thinking, boy, Finn Wolfhard already looks a ton older than he does in this. So there's some de-aging. It's noticeable in some scenes, not so much in others. And I suspect that they had shot some of those Baron's scenes and some of the other flashbacky scenes during the making of the first film and they got scrapped or left out in hopes that they would get back to it in another time. I may be wrong, but I, in some scenes they look actually young and others they look de-aged. The voice thing was a little off. It just kind of hit my ear the wrong way, mostly with Finn Wolfhard and Jack Grazer. You get a little bit of that Uncanny Valley look with Finn Wolfhard, Jack Razor, and the kid that plays Ben, but a minor complaint. I, I don't know if I would have preferred that they just shot the scenes with them older and say, hey, you know, I mean, that's how it happened. But I think they did that because they did have some scenes already in the can. If I was forced at gunpoint to pick one version of it to watch for the rest of my life, I'd probably go with It Chapter 2. It satisfies that split narrative. Uh, I'd much rather watch that than any part of the original miniseries. And so I'd go with that if I had to. And when it comes out, I will probably buy it. I bought the first one. Oops, I think I made Siri come on my phone there. Sorry. I bought the first Blu-ray for super cheap at Target, so, you know, if it's 10 bucks or something, I'll buy it. As far as the proposed six-hour supercut, I might watch it. I'd be curious to see the cutout scenes. Uh, you know, wouldn't kill me. But, uh, yeah, watch, watch them. I mean, as far as modern horror, you could do a lot worse, and I certainly have. I just remembered something, and I wanted had meant to talk about this and then I forgot. Uh, so I'm throwing in at the end here. There was one thing that kept picking at me while I was watching chapter two 
and it had to do with that January Embers poem that Ben wrote to Bev. And I know that the adult characters don't retain all of their memories from Derry, but they slowly kind of get it back, get it back, remember, remember. But they make it as if Beverly has re-forgotten that Ben was the one that wrote that poem and not Bill. She and Bill are having all these moments together, and I think at one point she wants to bring it up. She has found that old poem again, and I'm like, am I misremembering this? Didn't she figure that out at the end of chapter one, that it was Ben? Uh, So that kind of bugged me, that little instance of retconning. I think that's how it is in the book, that she doesn't remember until then when they're adults, but they'd already negated that in chapter one, so I just had to get that out. On to something else. Another reason my interest in King started to wane had to do with the next two publications. We get The Eyes of the Dragon and another volume of The Dark Tower with The Drawing of the Three. And just a correction from last episode... The Dark Tower series are not really novellas. I think they're 300 to 400 pages, so they're, that's, a no, that's novel length. My apologies for that error. The Eyes of the Dragon was pure fantasy fiction, which was not an interest of mine back then. And King suffered a lot of backlash because of this. Now, I didn't take it personally or really care all that much. I just wasn't interested in reading it. Didn't even check it out at the library. I think my brother-in-law has it. Maybe I'll read it someday. I probably said that earlier in the episode. Sorry. (laughs) I'm doing this on successive days, and I don't always remember everything I say. And the Dark Tower, like I've mentioned, I had no interest in. And they kind of cross over a little bit from what I understand. So that backlash, as well as some of King's personal issues ended up being the inspiration for his next book. Misery was published in June of 1987, and it was originally going to be one of his Bachman books, which kind of makes sense, a little different than most King novels. We're getting a little bit back into horror after these fantasy books, Uh, but by that time, the pseudonym had been uncovered, and so he published it under his own name. And once again, we have another writer-protagonist stand-in for King with author Paul Sheldon. Sheldon is the author of a best-selling and popular series of romance novels about Misery Chastain. Hey, that's an interesting little connection there. He feels stifled by this writing and has written a new book, That is a diversion from that, a crime novel. After completing the new manuscript, he drives in a snowstorm in Colorado, has an accident, and is rescued by Annie Wilkes, his number one fan. So the character of Annie Wilkes encapsulates that angry group of people, a group of fans that didn't like the new direction King was taking, and also represents the drugs and alcohol that he was dependent on. I really enjoy the story of Misery. I like that kind of claustrophobic two-person story. 
And so I was excited when the movie was announced and doubly excited because we had a return to Rob Reiner at the helm. And I had really enjoyed Stand By Me a great deal when it came out. Rob Reiner even named his production company after Castle Rock, which appealed to me. And so this was going to be a, an event movie for us. I mentioned way back in the introductory episode about my dad not going to the movie theater very much when I was growing up, and really not at all when I was this age. But we decided when the movie came out, I'm pretty sure this was me, my sister, her future husband, my mom, and we dragged my dad, and we all went to go see this movie. He almost died. She nursed him back from death. Your shoulder was pretty badly dislocated. It was a little stubborn, but I finally popped it back in. And now that he's getting better. Forgive me for prattling away and making you feel all oogie. She can't bear to see him go. You and I were meant to be together forever. Please don't do it. It's for the best. Misery. God, I love you. And I don't think my dad ever forgave us for taking him to this film. Not because the movie's bad. I think we all really enjoyed it, including him. It's just that one scene. And unlike me, I don't think my dad is fond of screen violence. This is one of those movies that if I catch it by happenstance on TV, I will finish it out. And I don't always go looking for it. And this kind of, I put Jaws in that category and Close Encounters and some other, I don't necessarily feel the itch to watch it all the time, but if I catch it, I definitely sit through. I watch Misery on my own accord a couple times a year usually. It's a really great film. We've got a good William Goldman script, a great direction from Rob Reiner, and a great cast I love Kathy Bates in this and of course she won the Academy Award so yay for horror and the Oscars I know that Mr. Man they also call them serials I'm not stupid you know James Caan is one of those actors that I've never really felt a connection with and I don't know if it's just his overall gruff nature I know that King didn't really picture the character of Paul Sheldon as someone like James Caan. I uh, wish I could find the quote. He does a fine job. He gets that edge to it that probably isn't in the book, but that I kind of appreciate in the movie where he's you, you know he's got to hold his tongue throughout once he realizes that shit is not right. So that works for the film. And he does a good job. I mean, he's a fine actor. There's just something about him that always kind of bugs me a little bit. But I do love the inclusion of the sheriff character Buster with Richard Farnsworth and his wife, played by Frances Sternhagen. They are not in the novel. There is a, a sheriff or a police, a state police, who does get killed by Annie Wilkes, but it's not fleshed out like this. And their repartee throughout the movie brings some humor that that we need and also gets us out of that claustrophobic room every once in a while plus it's got a little murder she wrote detective style stuff going on no i won't play the theme this time so i enjoy that addition uh, otherwise it's pretty faithful to the book 
there are some simplifications, especially at the end with Annie Wilkes's death, which again work for a movie. And then the most famous change is in regard to the most famous scene of the film. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to get into spoilers. The hobbling scene, and I think by the time I saw the movie, I didn't even realize that this was a change. And that in the book, she actually cuts his foot off with an axe. And in the movie, I think for the movie, this works better. We don't have any blood or gore. Uh, that would have been a fairly horrific scene. As it is, it is a stomach turning. I mean, it's still violent and it's still gut-riching, but something about that foot going floppy just absolutely kills me every time I see it. That doesn't sound right. I did have a fake memory about it, though. For some reason, at some point, I, sh I thought that they showed her doing it to both, but they just showed <laughs> the one foot. It's absolutely amazing and unfortunately has a really bad special effects dummy at the end of the movie, but that hobbling scene is just ah, beautiful. Well, I hate to go out on a downer note, but King's next book, The Tommyknockers, as I have mentioned, was the nail in the coffin for me. This came out the same year. It was published November 10th, 1987. And I remember thinking to myself, as I read the book, if this ending is shit again, I'm done. And it was, and I was. The miniseries that came out in 1993 really did nothing to help that. Now, I did read, you know, down the road, I read Needful Things and I read Four Past Midnight and none of them really had enough oomph to bring me back into the King fold. That wouldn't happen for quite a few years. I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this on the introductory episode or not, a few years back. I had some Amazon gift card money. I was watching all the movies again. And instead of, I mean, there's been so many novels since the Tommyknockers or, and or Needful Things. But I thought, well, you know what? It's just so hard. And usually when I read these days, I fall asleep. So I bought all of the short story collections that I had missed since Four Past Midnight. I've read through a couple of them. I think I'm in the middle of one. Of course, I'm rereading Pet Cemetery still. I just bought Dance Macabre, which is a book that I did not read back then. I did finish my reread of The Shining and loved it. And I mentioned that I read Dr. Sleep on that episode. But uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe when I retire, I will go back and, and read all of those King novels that I passed up when I got too highfalutin for him. Well, thank you so much for joining me once again in this journey down Stephen King Road. Next up will be either Odds and Ends or Bachman Books. I haven't quite decided. I've got a couple other things to do as well. I've got to talk to a couple people about different things, one related to Stephen King and one not. And so these will come out maybe a little more sporadically than these first four. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on your platform of choice. If you have any suggestions about King books and or movies to talk about, let me know. 
And don't forget... Anything can happen when you wake up heavy. Ho, 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 ho.